Uh, welcome to the, uh, the final Sunday of the year, final day of the year, and the last message. I don't like to sit up here. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Tom Williams. And when Kevin asked me to speak today, and he said that I could uh, speak on any topic that I wanted, <clears throat> it was obvious to me that this time of year is common for us to take stock in what happened this last year, reflect on the last year, and we oftentimes use that to make goals, set resolutions for the year to come. And it came very clear to me very quickly as I began to reflect on this last year, uh, just how tough this last year's been for me. It's been, well, it's been the hardest year uh, in some ways that I can ever remember, specifically because of my health. Uh, I would say going into the year 2023, for three or four months, uh, I had dealt with chronic sinusitis. It's essentially you're sick each and every day, all day, and it never gets better. And I also started to develop breathing problems. So I was having breathing attacks, had to go to the emergency room. Um, and so that's going into 2022, and after countless doctor visits, trying different kinds of medication, uh, it was determined that the best course of action for me would be uh, sinus surgery. So that's how I started 2023, with surgery. And initially, I had good results. Um, I was able to breathe through my nose. But the, uh, the breathing, the lung issue, that continued. Um, well into uh, the spring, and so early spring, I finally was able to meet with a, a pulmonologist, I think is the word, and um, I was diagnosed with asthma. So at the age of 56, I'm diagnosed with asthma. Never had any breathing issues before. Um, so I go on medication. The medication really does help, brings it under control. So by the summertime, I'm starting to feel like, okay, I'm recovering. I've had the sinus surgery. That's going to get better. I've, I'm on medication for my asthma. I think I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm able to get back outside, do activities. My favorite thing is to golf. So I was able to start golfing by the middle of summer and really looking forward to an autumn golf season, which is my favorite time to golf. And it was a great season to golf this autumn. Just not for me. Um, the men's breakfast was held in September. And I was uh, showing up early to set up for the men's breakfast. And I'm moving chairs, much like we do over here uh, after Sunday. And the first stack of chairs that I grab and lift, I tore my uh, distal bicep tendon uh, clean from the bone. <laughs> so my bicep rolled up into my arm like a, a window shade. It was the weirdest sensation, and it, and it hurt. It didn't feel good at all. So, uh, that led to surgery. So I had surgery in September, <clears throat> and the surgery went well. But I was in a, a cast for three weeks. I was in an arm brace for eight weeks. Some of you probably saw me wearing that around. But that was essentially the end of all activity. And frankly, it's the end of most activity for me until March is, is when I understand. So um, not a good year. Not, not my best year, but the, the greatest tragedy with regards to last year, wasn't the suffering that I went through. And I'm certainly not sharing this with you to elicit any kind of uh, pity or sympathy from you. But if you do want to hug me after service, and <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. But no, because 
Many of you are struggling and suffering from things worse than I am, and, and for a longer period of time. And all of us will at one point in this coming year probably have to face something. It's, it's part of the world that we live in. Now, the greatest tragedy for me this last year and, and what God has revealed to me was how poorly I handled it. I did not handle it well at all. It was a, a battle of my will against God's will. And guess who lost that will, that battle? It was not won by me, and it will never be won by me. Now, I withdrew from God. Um, I took the truth that I know about God and his word, and I repressed it. I pushed it down. And I really wanted my will to be done, not God's will. And, and early in the sickness and suffering, my prayer was, God, you know, you're the great healer. You're the only one that can heal me. Please heal me, but not my will, your will. That's how we're supposed to pray. Um, that's the right way to pray. But I will tell you, it wasn't a whole lot of months where I left that last part off. I didn't want God's will as long as it didn't fit within my will, as long as it wasn't aligning with my will. I was tired of being sick, and I wanted to be healed. So I didn't want God's will. And, and so as I was preparing for this message, God showed me that really the, the fruit that comes from that kind of an attitude was bitterness, anger, uh, resentment, despair, frankly, to the point of I started, I think, to show symptoms of depression, which is, again, something that I've never dealt with before. And he made it clear that there was a better way, you know, rather than desiring and wanting and holding on to my will was to surrender to God and his will. And that's what the focus of today's message is. Because as no matter what we've been through this last year, no matter what we're going to face going forward, God's will is good because God is good. And that's what we're going to focus on. But before we get to the hope, the good news, the bad news is my will. Let's talk about my will. Um, my will is not good, essentially. My will cannot be trusted. I can't trust my will. Why can't I trust my will? I can't trust my will because my will is still attached in some capacity to my sin nature. When I became saved, <clears throat> the, the Bible teaches God put a new spirit in me, right? Paul says we're a new creation. And yet, our old sin nature remains. It's not removed entirely. And so, because of that, my will is still subject to that sin nature. And so it can't be trusted. I can still choose in my will to disobey God and have and do. I can, with the new nature, choose to obey him. But it's still subject to my sin nature. And even along with that, my will is subject to limited knowledge and understanding. I know I like to tell my wife that I know everything, but... I don't know everything. God knows everything, and I don't. Because I don't know everything, and I don't have unlimited knowledge and understanding, I don't really know what's best for me. But God does. And so, putting aside my will, which is something that I'm supposed to try and do every single day, 
is in my best interest because unlike my will, which can't be trusted, God's will can be trusted. God's will is good. And we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at two aspects of God's will today. First, his, uh, his revealed will, which is his will of command. It's the Bible. It's what we read and try to focus all teaching on up here is God's word. But we're also going to look at God's will of decree, if you will. His, his secret will, his hidden will, that which is not revealed to us except through what we can see happen and occur in history and through the natural course of time. We're going to look at both those, and I think we're going to see that both are good because of God and who God is. So, let's start with the will of command. Uh, what I need to do, rather than clinging to my own will, is I need to align my will with God's revealed will. Again, because it's trustworthy. I can count on it. It is good. God's word, first of all, is truth. I think in the notes I wrote true. But it's actually truth. Jesus says in John 17, 17, and he's praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He's not just saying your word has truth. He's not just saying that your word is true. The word there that he uses, aletheia, is, is a noun. It's not an adjective. It's not describing the Bible, which some people like to say, yeah, that there's some truth in the Bible. There's some true things in the Bible. No. Jesus is saying, this is the standard for truth. God's word is truth. Now, we live in a world where truth is it's subjective, right? It's in the eye of the beholder. What's true for you, that's fine. It doesn't have to be true for me. What's true for me doesn't need to be true for you. And that's a cop-out. That's not truth. That's actually a lie. And we're told that we need to accept that. But we need to stand on the, the fact, the goodness of God's word, because it's truth. Therefore, anything that we decide, anything, any viewpoint we might have, what we should do is start with God's word. That's the starting point. That's what we should compare everything to, God's truth. But not only is his word truth, it's, it's relevant, it's practical, it's useful. So reading the Bible is not just so that we can accumulate knowledge and there's some ethereal philosophical understanding out there and we just leave it there. God's word, his truth is useful. And it is to be used by us each and every day. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Now, <clears throat> I confess that when I first started really reading that and studying that, what does that mean? My initial thought was, okay, well, I need to gain a knowledge of God so I can teach other people. So I can rebuke and correct other people. And, you know, down the road, there's a sense of truth in that. Certainly, he was writing to Timothy, who was a teacher. But this is for me. God's word, his truth, is profitable for teaching me each and every day. For rebuking me. For the way I handled my suffering this last year. For correcting my focus going into this next year. And certainly for training me and helping me and showing me the way to be righteous. So it's useful. 
And we need to use it. And in Hebrews 4.12, the writer says, For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is able to judge the ideas and thoughts of the heart. And when I read that, it was clear to me that what God was showing me was there was this disconnect between what I know to be true in my head and what was motivating my actions, motivating my heart. And that shouldn't be. And the reason it was there was because I was repressing what I know to be true so that I could try and have my own way, my own will. No. This says, judging the ideas of the thought of the heart. And so there's this connection. And so what we read, the truth we read in God's word, we need to allow that to saturate us and to change the way we think so that the way we think now aligns more with what God wants us to do, the way he wants us to act, the way he wants us to feel, to relate. That sh there should be no disconnect there, and he made that clear to me as I repressed the truth, as I resisted God. So it's true, it's useful, and then lastly, it, it transforms us. God's word his revealed will is transforming. Romans 12, 2 says this. It says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. There it is. In order to discern God's will, in order to see it as pleasing and good, we need to be transformed. And we, tr we, we become transformed by the renewing of our mind through God's word, by the power of his spirit in us to change us. And then we go from wanting and demanding our own will. Now we're desiring God's will. We're desiring to be and obedient to what his word reveals about him and how he wants us to live. We need to read God's word daily. We need to meditate, study God's word so that we know it and understand it. And we need to allow it to change the way we think. And that occurs when we obey it. When we obey God's word, that's how we align our will with his revealed will. It's the renewing of our minds and the transforming of our spirit. And the end result here, the end result is there's a strengthening of the disposition of our heart toward the things of God, towards God's will, and a weakening toward our sin nature, our old nature. We learn to desire God's will and comparatively to despise our own will. That's the drastic transformation that takes place. And it's a combination of God and man, right? And Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says this. It says, so then, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose or his will. We work out his will. God is the one enabling us to do it, and God is the one who puts the desire in us. But we need to pick up the Bible. We need to read and do our best to understand and ask God to help us along with that. And his promise is that he does. He does do that. 
And so when we're able to align our will with God's revealed will, with his word, now that will allow us to resign our will or surrender it to his hidden will. So let's talk about God's will of decree. I just want to make three quick points about his hidden will. This is his eternal purpose and plan, okay? It's, it's what we, like I said, it's what we see unfold. We don't see it before it happens. And we don't always understand why it happens. He doesn't necessarily reveal the purpose and reason for all that he decrees to come about. So the first characteristic, I think, of his hidden will, this is going to be a shocker, it's hidden. It's not revealed to us. Moses writes in Deuteronomy 29, 29, he says this. He says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, so that we may follow all the words of this law. There it is again, obedience. Moses is saying and recognizing some things are revealed to us. It is those revealed things that we need to obey, that we need to follow, that we need to understand and pursue, not the stuff that he doesn't reveal to us. And I know it's exciting sometimes to think about, I wonder what this means or that means. I wonder what God's plan is for the future. Fun stuff. But we can get lost in that and then fail to obey what he's actually revealed to us and commands us to obey. The secret things of God are first of all hidden because God doesn't intend us to know it. That's his intention. If he intended us to know it, it would be part of his revealed will. He doesn't intend. But also, we are finite and we worship an infinite God. The finite can't fully understand the infinite. It's impossible. And so, he doesn't intend for us to know it. We can't know all of it. And, you know, we just came off a study in Job a couple months ago. And clearly, that study... Uh, that had a huge impact on me because um, I felt like I was suffering like Job, but obviously I suffered in no way like Job did. But through that, towards the end of that book, we see a dialogue between God and Job. But God never details out to Job why he suffered. He didn't spell it all out for Job. What he did is he reminded Job that Job is Job And God is God. Job is not God. And Job embraced that. Job found comfort in that. That's ultimately what brings him comfort. It's not receiving double and triple at the end of it. That's a gift from God. Before that, he found comfort in understanding and recognizing, remembering, oh, that's right, I'm not God. I I can't understand everything that God does or his purpose for it. And he says in 42.3, he says, surely I spoke about the things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Too wonderful and maybe too terrible, you guys. I mean, the secret and the knowledge and the understanding of God is so great, we can't hope to understand it fully. And we would do well, all of us, I think, to come to that point where we, we love that about God. We love that truth about God and his hidden will. So it's hidden. Second 
It's certain. It's, it can't be thwarted by man. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. This is God speaking of himself. Okay, he says, remember what happened long ago, for I am God. There is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. That's God. It's certain. So we can see the foolishness of me trying to change God's will and align it with my will. God's will is certain, it's good, and it's perfect. And it won't change. And Job, again, recognizing this, 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. So understanding, embracing, loving the hiddenness of God's secret will, loving and embracing the certainty of God's secret will, recognizing Nothing happens outside of his sovereign authority. He hasn't lost control of this world. And he hasn't lost control of everything that's going to happen to us going forward. The third thing, God's secret will includes everything. It includes good and bad. Good and bad. You see, when Adam sinned and sin entered the world, the world was cursed. We live in a cursed world and every person born of God is born with a sin nature. Or Sorry, born of man is born with a sin nature. Because of that, there's evil in the world. There's sin committed, and there's the consequences of sin. We live in a dark, cursed world full of evil and bad things. There's certainly good things that happen. And all of it falls within the scope and authority of God's hidden decree, his hidden will. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 45, he said, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's the son of God, God the son, saying all of this, good and bad, it all is under the plan and purpose of God. He hasn't lost control of any of this. And then in 1 Peter 4, 19, Peter writes, so those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. That's our response. That's the, unlike my response, that's the proper response. When we face hardship, trial, uncertainty, our response shouldn't be, God, you're not making any sense. You need to answer me. You need to explain this to me. It should be while suffering, and Peter points out that that's in accordance with God's will, we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. We trust ourselves to what we know to be true about the character of God, which is that God is good. He's eternally and infinitely good. That's what all of scripture points to. Moses, Job, Peter, and many others, they all understood this. They all understood that not only can't we know everything about God and God's will, not only is he not going to explain himself in every instance to us, it's still good, and it's right, and it's proper, and we need to trust that. And again, it's because they understood God's character. 
And that's a, there's an encouragement in there for us because we have that same capacity to understand that God is good. And in that, we need to trust that God is always good because he doesn't change. God is immutable. Jesus said no one is good but God. When the rich young man called Jesus good, Jesus said no one is good but God. So we know God is good and we know he's eternally good and we know that he never changes. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God doesn't change. All good things come from God. And everything that comes to pass falls under God's sovereign authority. So what do we do with that? Well, because God is good always and never changes, everything that he plans, purposes, permits, in the end, has good, good behind it. And I think the scripture, I think, that is most well-known that explains this is Romans 8, 28. And I'm going to read, actually, Romans 8, 28 through 30, because I think all of this ties together. And it says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And in all of that, we see not only is he working out his will, purposing it for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, but there's a certainty about the process, which ends in glorification. That's God's plan. That's his purpose. But you know, this purpose isn't for everybody. He works together the good of those who love him, who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And that describes a regenerated, born-again Christ follower, one who has repented, surrendered their life to Christ. So, a couple things. If you're here today and you haven't made that commitment to Jesus, consider, first, you being here is part of God's hidden will and his decree. You're meant to hear this, this truth. But secondly, consider, consider taking that step of faith, repenting, committing your life to Christ, submitting to his lordship in your life. Because when we do that, we make this promise certain. We make it real and impactful and working in our life. After service today, um, if there is anyone here who wants to talk through that and pray for that, I'll be right down here. And um, I'm more than happy to talk to you about that and pray with you. But the other point I want to make about this verse and this promise that God makes is God's not taking the evil actions of men and supernaturally making those actions good. They're still bad. They're still evil. They're still sinful. 
That's not the part that changes. And by the way, God doesn't cause men to sin. God doesn't tempt men to sin. We do that of our own volition, our own free will, our own sin nature. We sin. What this verse teaches, and what I believe the Bible clearly teaches, is that God will purpose and plan even the sinful actions of men for good. We don't always see the good. Sometimes we do see the good, but not always. I'm going to give you two examples from Scripture where we do see it. First one's in the Old Testament, and it's Joseph. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, I guess if you consider that a a big family. I don't think it's all that big, but he's one of 12 brothers. His 10 older brothers hated him, were jealous of him. And in, in their own sinful hearts, the hardness of their hearts, they planned and purposed, first of all, to kill him when they decided not to do that. They sold him into slavery to Egypt. He was taken into slavery in Egypt. And even while in Egypt, and through the obedience to God, he was still treated poorly. Bad things still happened. He still suffered. Joseph did. Well, eventually Joseph becomes second in command to Pharaoh. And in, in the wisdom and understanding that God gives Joseph, Joseph plans and prepares for the famine that's, that's about to hit. Well, his family, which is in Canaan, they, uh, they need to go to Egypt. They go there. They recognize Joseph, and they remember, this is, this is the one that we treated poorly in our sin. And they're concerned about Joseph's response to that. And in Genesis 45, 7, Joseph says this. He says, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. And in 50, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, you planned evil against me. But God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. It's the salvation of Israel, right? If God doesn't do this, if he doesn't take the evil in his brother's hearts, plan it and purpose it for Joseph going to Egypt, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die. The nation of Israel that we see in the news right now wouldn't even exist. Now, you could say, well, he could have brought it about in a different way. No, he couldn't. There's certainty in his secret plan. And he purposes even the evil that men do and brings good out of it. He purposes it for the good of many. In this case, the salvation of Israel. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus, in Acts 4, 27 through 28, this is Peter and John, and they're praying with the newly formed church. And, and they, here's what they pray. They say, for in fact, this city, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was God's hand. It was his plan that he predestined to take place. The greatest perpetration of evil by man was the murder of Jesus, the murder of the Son of God. From the greatest evil comes the greatest good. 
the salvation, the opportunity for salvation and reconciliation with God. From the greatest evil comes the greatest good. That's just two examples. They're big examples, but that's two examples of God purposing all things to work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So what do we do with this? Actually, if the band wants to uh, come up, I'm going to close this out. Um, What do we do with this truth? How do we go into this next year knowing that we're going to face hardships? There'll be broken relationships. There'll be lost jobs, financial crisis. There'll be sickness. I, I feel way better today than I have in a long time, but I don't know how that, I don't know if that's going to last. I might end up in the same place I was last year. How do I respond differently this year? What hope do I have for this year? Well, I'm just going to give us three, three things. It's common to give homework. And this homework is not for this week. This homework is for this year going forward. When you suffer, remember suffering challenges us, compels us to wrestle with God, not withdraw from God. That's our, that's our will. That's our sin nature wants to withdraw from God. No, God wants us to engage him. God created us not just in his image. He created us for him, for relationship with him. And so by bringing about suffering, what God is doing is he's calling us to him. And so let's not withdraw from him. Let's run to him. Second thing, let's remember that suffering challenges us to exercise our faith. Let's face it, when times are good, we're less likely to rely on faith and not so much on our circumstances. And suffering challenges us to exercise our faith, and God will use appropriate means to grow our faith. Because like Paul listed out, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to come more and more like Christ, requires that our faith is exercised and our faith grows. Lastly, suffering challenges us to choose between our will and God's will. It challenges us to choose between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. One brings despair, bitterness, and anger, and one brings hope, joy, peace, and certainly comfort. God is good, and he never changes. He's always eternally good. And he will purpose and plan and permit through both good and bad what he will for our good, for our best, to draw us to him, to grow our faith, and to encourage us, compel us to choose him over this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your patience and your grace and your understanding and uh, everything that you put on me this year. God, I'm sorry for the way I, I responded and, and I'm thankful that, that uh, you're good and that you're faithful. You're faithful in spite of my unfaithfulness.
And you're good in spite of my focusing on and demanding my own will. And God, I pray as we go into this, this year, this 2024, and, and not knowing what's going to come of it, not knowing what we're going to face, God, that we would remember your goodness, we would remember your love for us, and we would remember, God, that you work all things out, good or bad. God, you work it out for our good, for our best, always with our best, not only known to you, but in mind. God, help us to trust you in all ways and at all times. God, pray this in your son's name. Amen.